at the center of our worship of God, we hear from God through His Word. This is His means of grace to us, the Word of God given to us in Scripture, and then spoken to your ears, moving through your mind, hitting your heart, that you might believe and be shaped. Every week of our lives, we give ourselves to the preaching of Scripture together. And then we come down to Jesus' table, and we sing and we pray and we celebrate the grace of God. So your heart should be ready to receive from God's words in this time. All right, let's do this. Jen just read from Acts 15. This is the center of the book of Acts. It's like a hinge on a door that opens up the advance of the gospel for 2,000 years to every single people, group, tribe, tongue, nation, city, state, street, block in the world. This is the chapter that opens that vista of gospel advance up for us. Here's what has happened so far in the story. Gospel grace has been poured out on the Jews. I'll point over here. One people group, the Jews. And gospel grace has now been poured out on not Jews, Romans and Greeks. The code word in the Bible for that is Gentiles. And now we've got this question. Are we going to have one church or are we going to have two churches? Is there any way that these wildly diverse cultural people groups can become one family of God? That's the question we're working on today. How can a culturally diverse church family stay united? Okay, let me start here. Rupertus Meldenius. Anybody know what that is? I seriously hope not. It sounds like an infectious disease. Oh no, I got Rupertus Meldenius. I'm in trouble. It could be an obscure Latin phrase. I was going to ask Will about that, like e pluribus unum or something. It's actually the name of a person... (laughs) Oh, I got stuck with that name, Rupertus Meldenius. He was an, uh, a solid but basically obscure theologian in the 1600s. Nobody would have ever heard of them, of him, except he wrote one money line. One money line. He was a theological one-hit wonder. Do you know what one-hit wonders are? We tried to come up with one-hit wonders in my house. We came up with taco. Putting on the Ritz? No? All right. Juice Jones? I saw you walking in the rain. No? Okay. Us three? Flip, flip, flip Fantasia? No? Okay. Grace actually suggested MC Hammer, and I was horrified. (laughs) She was like, what? You can't touch this. That was it. I said, too legit to quit? Here comes the hammer. You want me to run down all the tracks on that LP? One-hit wonder. This man was a one-hit wonder. He wrote this one phrase. He wrote during a time of upheaval upheaval, uh, in European history. The church was a part of that upheaval. He so wanted the church to be united that he was thinking deeply on how can Jesus' church be a, a light of unity to this broken, war-torn world, 
And this is what he said we should be going for. You, you may have heard it before. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. Okay, so we've got in essentials, unity. In other words, you cannot be united without a shared commitment to what's true. Truth needs to be at the center of a community like ours. Without sound doctrine holding things together, we can't have any unity. There are some things that need to be agreed on. But not everything is in that category. There are a ton of things in the Christian life that are open-handed. And on those things, we've been given liberty by God to do as we please with our consciences laid before Him. And then third, in working out these things together, love needs to be the ethos or the ethic of our family. You need to be self-forgetful. I come last. Forget about me. How can I see to it that the person next to me, across from me, is thriving? Now, the reason that this was was a one-hit wonder, just a wonderful theological statement, is because this is just a summary of the clear teaching of Scripture. How can a hundred diverse people who come from different backgrounds, different families, have different personalities, some of us love MC Hammer, some of us pass on MC Hammer, we have different takes on, on things, how can we not constantly be splitting into factions and cliques and church splits? How can we all not constantly be just taking our ball and going home because we don't fit with the other people like a glove? How can we stay united? Here it is. Unity with essentials, liberty with non-essentials, and in all of it, love. This is exactly what we see played out in Acts chapter 15. Jen's read some of that to us already. Before we get into the words of Scripture, I have to do some teaching so that you have the context so that this will make sense. So let me do that with you. Here we go. In His infinite wisdom, God chose to save sinners in a certain way. He began His work of saving the whole world by working with one specific family, one specific people group, one ethnic group of people. Scripture calls that people Israel. That's because Israel was another name for Jacob, who was the father of this family. Scripture also calls them the Jews. By the time of Jesus, they were living in Judea, the southern part of Palestine, so they were called the Jews. When you read your Bible and you either see Israel or the Jews, I want you to think this is the initial seed covenant people of God. God set his affection on Israel in particular as a means of setting his affection on the whole world. Does anyone here know that the Powerball is up to like almost a billion dollars? All right, all my scratch ticket heads were like, yes. If one of you wins that, 
in some way, I'm not advising that you play it, but let's just say that somebody gave you a ticket and said, whatever happens, you get it, and so, and you got $800 million, just you. I would expect you to bless everyone in this room in tangible, beautiful ways. Grace, come, a, a gift comes to one person and then it flows to others. This is the way that the Lord was working His plan of salvation. He set His affections on Israel like winning the lottery. And then that was going to get to everyone else. All right, another way to say setting affections is to say grace. God moved toward these people in grace as a means of getting grace to the rest of us. Okay, you know the story of Moses. Israel was in slavery in Egypt. God set His love on them and set them free from all of their bondage and walked them to freedom. They got into the other side of the Red Sea. He established His covenant with this people through Moses. We call that the Older Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. In this covenant, kind of like the Constitution of the United States of America, it's a covenant that God forged with these people. There were three different types of law that were given to them. My text is not going to make sense if you don't understand these differences, so let's run through it fast. Threaded through this law was three different kinds of laws in there. One was called We call it moral law. In the law of Moses, God articulated for his people the law of the moral law that is written on the hearts of all of us. In other words, beginning with the first man and the first woman, spreading to every country, every nation, every person, you and me, the moral law of God holds. It is eternal, it is forever, it is old covenant, new covenant. There is a moral law of God that is binding on us. A bunch of that is articulated in Moses' covenant. So we get the Ten Commands, which is a summary of the moral law of God. Things like, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not lie. Jesus boils it down to two commands for us. And he says, if you were loving God with everything you had and you were loving your neighbor as yourself, you would be fulfilling the moral law of God. Okay, Old covenant, new covenant, Jew, Bostonian, ADBC, everyone, always, all of us. This law is binding on us. And it's beautiful and it's good. And there's joy in obedience to it. Okay, Then there was civil law. Unlike the church today, which is scattered among all the nations of the world, Israel was a nation like Indonesia or Pakistan or China or Mexico or Ghana or Texas. It was its own nation. Now, you know how our nation has civil laws so that we can learn how to live and function together? Things like speed limits, much too low in Massachusetts. Building codes, way too many in Massachusetts. Gun laws, criminal laws, term limits, that kind of thing. If you read the Older Covenant, you're going to read all of these civil laws of how the nation of Israel would function together. And then there was a third element. This is the big one for us today. It was called 
ceremonial law or the ceremonies and the customs that was required of these people to keep to show off their allegiance to and their belonging to Yahweh, the God of Israel. So these were otherwise neutral realities that God infused with very rich covenantal meaning. And it marked them as belonging to Him and being different from the rest of the world. So I'll give you some examples. You may know these. There are food laws in the Older Covenant. Kosher foods and unkosher foods. And God said, honor me in this. Don't eat certain kinds of foods. They're unclean, and I've made you clean by not eating that food. That's a custom I want you to keep to honor me. Haircut laws. So the length of the beard. I don't know if you've seen Orthodox Hasidic Jews will have long curls on the side of their head. There was laws or customs of the way that a man or a woman would wear their hair as obedience to God, showing that they belong to Him. And the king custom, the king ceremony, the one in lights, was circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant. If you love God and you belong to Him, you make sure that all the men in your family are circumcised. That is the sign that you belong to God. Every Jew would have taken these ceremonies dead serious. Not as a means of earning God's grace, but as showing that they belong to the Lord. You have to feel this if what I'm about to say is going to make any sense. A faithful Jew would never dream of not circumcising their son. Never dream of it. A faithful Jew would never, ever dream of eating bacon or sausage or raven or whatever the other unclean foods were. A faithful Jew would always have a haircut with curls coming down the sideburns. It's what you do if you belong to God. Okay, centuries go by like this right here, but when Jesus comes, Everything that the ceremonies and the customs pointed to were fulfilled in his life and his death and resurrection. And he kicked open the back doors of the kingdom of God and he threw his arms open and he said, hey, all nations, come on into my grace. I've begun with Israel. I fulfill my promises. Everybody come to Jesus as you are, whether you are Jewish or not. The book of Acts is the story of that crazy shift happening. And it's big. Think of this. Everybody used to look the same, sound the same, and do the same things. Now, there's an explosion of colors, cultures, languages, hairstyles, all brought into one church family. Can everybody in here feel the potential collision that's about to happen. It's like trying to pick a radio station on the, on the radio in my car. It is going to be a fight. The Jews loved the customs, followed them to a T. What about the Romans and the Greeks? Never heard of the customs. 
Every Jew was circumcised. Not one Roman or Greek man would have been circumcised. Every Jew, duck dynasty, going right down here. Every one of them. The Romans had 100,000 different hairstyles. Man buns, mullets, mohawks, the whole thing throughout the Roman Empire. No Jew would ever have touched anything but kosher food. These new people in the life of the church are like, hey, I'm bringing honey-baked ham to the potluck. It's going to be awesome. Do you feel this? How could there be unity among these people? How could there ever be unity among these people? Some of the Jewish Christians came up with a solution. They said, here's how we'll get unity. The Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians. That was their solution. Here's what they said in the verses just before and including what Jen read. They said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you see it in there? You cannot be saved, theology, truth statement. And so it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses, the customs, the ceremonial law. This was their solution to the problem. Hey, I know how to get unity. Everybody becomes Jewish. Then you can become Christian. What's the major problem with that solution? That would be a repudiation of the gospel itself. We'd be overrunning an essential here. That statement that salvation is not by grace alone, but it's grace plus some of the works that you bring to the table because you know you're really not that bad and you can contribute. That is death to the soul. It is heresy. And we don't want our church built on lies like that. And so the apostles knew this was a problem. They called a council to try and establish unity on the gospel. Without that unity, there is no unity. Last week's sermon that I never got to preach was supposed to be about all of that. Here's the big idea. I'm just going to throw it at you. Essential for unity, God and his grace, not us and our efforts. That's essential for Christian unity. And we hate that because we think we're not that bad. We think we're pretty good. Of course we can contribute something. But God says, no, here's the gospel. None of you, all of me. Your efforts don't play into you being saved. It is my grace for my glory and your joy. You are that bad that you need grace and nothing else. So in the council, they stick this essential down at the center of the life of this church. Jew or Gentile, Flatbush or Green Street, male or female, CFO or intern, Freebasing cocaine or doing all your homework. It doesn't matter. All of us can only be saved by the grace of Jesus. Is that unifying or what? That means all of us are saved the same exact way. The same way, by the grace of God. You feel how that essential truth pulls us together. We all need Jesus. We all get Jesus in the same way. Read the beginning of Acts 15 and that will whack you in the face. That gospel truth is a point of unity for our church. We will split this church if that is in doubt, if the gospel is up for grabs. 
we are unified around the truth of the grace of Jesus. Okay, once that's established, Pastor James speaks. This is what Jen read. He said, if this is true, observance of ceremonies and customs is not essential. Here's how he said it. Therefore, my judgment, this is the pastor of the Jerusalem church, my judgment is, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, hey, we just heard the stories from Peter and Paul. God has poured his grace out on these people. They've been born again. The Spirit has been given to them just like us, hearing and believing. Let's just let them breathe that in. Let's just let them swim deep in the waters of grace. Don't burden them down or trip them up and saying, hold on, do you know about hairstyles? We've got to get you to the barber if you're really going to be saved. Hang on, can I see your fridge? Because we've got to remove some things if you're really going to be saved. No, don't weigh them down with the customs and the ceremonies. Let them run in the grace of God. They are free to not be obligated, required to embrace the customs that have been fulfilled in Jesus. In other words, not essential, and so liberty, right? In the non-essentials, we want liberty. They don't have to observe the Mosaic customs and ceremonies. Every Greek and Roman man that had been saved was like psyched about this right here. Circumcision is taken off of the table. There's grand rejoicing. And they know that they don't have to become Jewish to have Jesus because they're free from the customs and the ceremonies in the new covenant of God's grace. Now You might expect me to finish the sermon right here and be like, okay, I got it. Grace is the essential. Therefore, the customs and the ceremonies are not essential. Unity on this, liberty on this. Let's sing some songs. But James keeps talking, and he says this, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Love reading the Bible. It's got some crazy lines in it like this, right? Okay, this is weird. Yo, Cruz, I thought you just told me that it was all of grace for the last 20 minutes. And now, you're going to prescribe external behaviors? He's giving them a list of do's and don'ts now? What, what just happened here in this council? What's going on? All right, we're going to look at the list. We're going to look at two different ways that people read this list. Um, a lot of times when you're reading the Bible, people are like, it sounds like this to me, and it sounds like this to me, and those can be reconciled, and I think this is one of those places. So we're going to do that together for a couple of minutes. But the first thing to note before we go down the list is, he doesn't have to tell them you have to keep the moral law of God, right? They still do. As a Christian, you are not free to now go lie and commit adultery and steal and bear false witness because you've got grace. The moral law of God is binding. He wouldn't need to give them a list, the Ten Commandments, again. So that can't be what this is. And so James is saying, uh, there's some things that I want you to stay far away from. 
All right, let's talk about how we can read this together. Uh, here's the list of things. Number one, things polluted by idols. We see that also this is food that would have been used in a, a ceremony of worship to idols and then eaten later on in the week or in the day. We see sexual immorality. That's this weird word for concubinage. When they would worship in the temple, they would also fornicate with temple prostitutes. So it wasn't just sexual immorality in general. It was a specific ugly means of sexual sin that was attached to temple worship. What has been strangled, the Mosaic Law was serious about the way that animals were sacrificed in these temple customs. They would like grab the animal by the throat and try and suck its breath out into the idol, a pagan practice. And blood, they would eat the animals while the blood was still in it, which was something that the older covenant of Moses said that we would not be doing. Those are the four things that we see in there. Okay? In other words, this is a summary of the old scene that they were a part of, of their worship services in these temples and these feasts of idolatry. That's the tie that binds this list together. All right, so let's talk about the two ways that we can hear this. I'm going to emphasize the second one, but I want you to hear both of them. One is this. You know what this list is? This list is about pursuing personal holiness. That James is saying, you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian, but you can't keep being a pagan and follow Jesus. God has saved you for himself, and holiness is not optional. And so, make sure that you stay away from these things all of which are associated with your old life that you've been forgiven and freed from. This would be similar to us saying to a newly repentant, newly baptized believer in the life of our church, hey, strip clubs are out. Right? You don't go over there anymore. Or Friday nights, getting blasted with your friends and then trying to hook up with whoever's in arm's distance of you. We're done with that. HBO, Cinemax, we're canceling those subscriptions. You know those Ozzy Osbourne records? We're going to get rid of those things. Jesus has a life of holiness for you now. You need to step out of what used to define your life. Okay, is that legit New Testament counsel? Absolutely. Totally. We could preach on that all day. Sin does not abound because grace is real. Grace sets us free from sin that we grow in deeper and deeper holiness. But there's also a second way to hear these words, and that's the one that I'm impressed with you with our theme of unity today, and that is this, that this list is not only about your personal holiness, Gentile and Antioch, it is about church unity. In other words, this list is about Laying down liberty in love. Three of the items, at least on this list, are the kinds of things that we talked about before, that the Mosaic law says you cannot do that. But even later on in the New Testament, we see that Paul says, you're free to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. Idols are nothing. Don't, don't ask where the food came from. 
Don't ask how rare it is. Does it have a little bit of blood left in it? Don't ask, hey, how was this lamb killed before I eat this meal? You're free from those things in Christ. If that's the emphasis of this list here, then we get to hear it in a little bit of a different way. What James is saying is, brothers, salvation is by grace through faith, and that's it. You're in. Do a couple of 360s right there and celebrate the grace of Jesus. Okay, good? But now that you are in, there are some things that it would be huge for you to be willing to step away from in love for those who are in your new church family. There's going to be Jews next to you in church. There's going to be unbelieving Jews asking about this Jesus community. Yes, you have liberty in your food choices, but love demands that you be willing to walk away from liberty because you so desire peace and unity in the life of the church in Antioch. The Jews who are with you, if they see you say, you know what? We're going to abstain from those things. Not as a means of our salvation, but because we love you and we know that those things are rugged for you. Wow, will that foster unity in the life of this church. The next verse helps us to see what that would feel like. And this is our last verse, 21. James says, For would you abstain because from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. In other words, look, Romans and Greeks, you might not know this, but for years and years, every single Saturday, in every single synagogue in Antioch and in the Roman Empire, these customs and ceremonies have been breathed in and embraced by your brothers and your sisters in your church now. Don't unnecessarily bring division and offense by flaunting your freedom to eat whatever you choose. Can you not do that? I know you could eat meat from a market that was a part of a temple feast, but would you be willing to forego that in love for unity? I know that you could eat really, really rare pork and your conscience could be clean. But can you abstain from that because you love the person next to you for whom that would be a struggle? I know that you can swing by one of those feasts and even go inside and say hey to some old friends and that you're not worshiping idols anymore. But what do you think about just staying far away from that street corner and from those feasts? Or, as Rupert Maldenius would say, how about in all things you are driven by love? Which would mean, will you give up your freedom in love for your brother? That's another way to hear this list. That it's about personal holiness, absolutely. But it's also about church unity and love. Okay, let me take this out of the sky and bring it down into Linfell's Parkway in Massachusetts. 
if we're going to have unity as a church, we cannot only have unity around the gospel. That's necessary. But we have to get united on you and me laying down some of our freedoms in love for the person next to us so that we can stay tight as a family. You ready for examples? And then we'll finish. So we're going to have generational differences, right? So there are three generations of cruises in the life of our church. You just run into each other right there, don't you? Okay, for example, my mom does not like the word socks, which is just a part of vernacular in Boston now, right? Like New York sucks, Peyton Manning sucks. A lot of you guys say that without even thinking about it. For her, that's a hard word for her to hear because she's holy and because she's from a different generation. When she tells me, Matthew, don't use that word socks, I have a decision to make, don't I? I know that I'm free to use that word if my heart is clean before Jesus. But in love for my mom, who's a member of this church, would I be willing to lay down my use of that word so that she could feel more united with me, safer around me? What do you think? All right, let's talk about clothing. When I went to Tanzania, I was speaking to the missionaries that are a part of Kevin's work out there. And he was giving me all the things to remember about Tanzania, right? It was like six pages. You know, there's these worms that you can get, and then they crawl right out of your skin. Uh, I forget what they're called, but freaky stuff on this list. Then there was this one thing on the list that said, hey, Matt, will you not wear shorts around the, the base and when you're doing your teaching? Because for Tanzanian Christians, a man wearing shorts is immodest and feminine, and they don't do that here. Okay, now when Sam and I get on the plane and we barely made the flight and we go to Tanzania together, do I throw on a pair of jorts or cargo jeans, cargo shorts? Don't ask me what jorts are. And do I go, hey, everybody, grace alone, I'm a Christian. I want you to see these long, pasty, white basketball legs because I don't have to. What do I do when I get to Tanzania? In love for my brothers and sisters there. Because I want unity, I walk around with pants on in 100-degree weather because I love you. Everybody feel that? All right, how about alcohol? Just in the life of our Malden congregation, we have a guy who's recovering from a battle with alcoholism, nearly took his life. He goes to a going-away party for a member of the church, and there's some brothers there who drink alcohol with no issue on their conscience. They, it's a liberty. They are free. Now they have a decision to make. It's 85 degrees. They're hanging out on the back porch. What do they want to do? Old Milwaukee, right? That's the cheapest beer it is. So I'm going to get an Old Milwaukee. I'm going to make sure it's ice cold. And in the fear of God, in holiness, with a clear conscience, we're going to drink some, some Bud Light. But instead, what do they do? Because they love their brother. And they know that that liberty would be very difficult for him to be around. What do they drink that day? Iced tea, wicked sweet, lemonade, Dr. Pepper. Now, did they have to do that? Would they have been sinning if they didn't? No, that's not an essential. But in all things, love. 
You know how much more united they are because they honor this guy who's coming to Jesus out of alcohol addiction. All right, one more, because I know examples are helpful. Disco ball. A couple of Saturday nights ago, somebody we had met through our gospel community was playing the trumpet in the funk philharmonic in Somerville. And so, Grace and I have a decision to make. What do you think about going to the disco ball together and we'll take Tim and Katie from our gospel community? Now, what goes down at a disco ball? You do not know this? Ooh, okay. The orchestra plays disco music. There's an open bar. There's a bunch of not Christian pagans, heterosexual and homosexual, dancing together. It's a party that probably leads to a whole bunch of sin later on in the night. Are Grace and I free, Tim and Katie free, you free, to go to a disco ball and to enjoy each other and to listen to the music and to love these people that we're meeting? Yeah, you can do that without sinning. It's a Christian liberty. We did, and we had a great time. But what if our gospel community was filled with 20-year-olds who had just gotten saved out of the clubbing scene and the smell of a club or the presence of an open bar or a table with uh, people around it drinking or a dance floor with people doing their disco thing is a great temptation to them because Jesus has just rescued them out of that scene and made them clean from the sin that was a part of it. Do you think that we would have done that together and invited that gospel community to be a part of that? In fact, we probably wouldn't have gone at all. Why? Love. Yes, it's a Christian liberty, but it is hugely important to me that the people around me in my church are holy and that I am loving them. I'm saved by grace, but I'm willing to lay my liberty down. That's how this second emphasis in this list would hit us in the life of our church. That is how diverse people with different consciences and personalities and upbringings can be family. If you would care more about the person next to you than yourself and say, I will enjoy my liberties to the glory of God, but never if it's hurtful to the person next to you. All right, so let's think on this and then we'll pray. There is a ton of liberty in the gospel. Praise God. Christians should be the happiest, freest, most fun-having people that there are. We are not going to hell anymore. We have been saved by the grace of Jesus. Let's have a party over that. There should be freedom and joy to enjoy the good things of this life without sin. But how are you going to use your freedom? Will you flaunt it or will you lay it down so that Seven Mile Road can be tight like this together? All right, think on that and we'll pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We are dead without it. If I have to contribute one hour of work to my salvation, it's over. I am, I am the worst sinner imaginable. There is no good in me to work my way to a holy God. But you have done all for me in your life and death and resurrection. 
and I and we revel in that together. And we put it down at the foundation of this church. It's you and your grace. It's not us and our efforts. Because of that, you've set us free now to enjoy so many things. But I pray that nobody in here would ever use their freedom in such a way as to cause the next person to stumble. Father, I pray that our church would get serious about both ways of hearing this message. That we would be the holiest people in the city of Boston. That there would be no question about who we worship, about how we have sex, about what we do with our money and our words, about how we live our lives. That they would be holy. But I also pray that we would hear these words as a means of Christian unity. That we get to lay down some things that would be liberties so that this church family could be united. If you don't visit our hearts, we'll never get there. But if you work on our hearts, we can begin to open our hands and to give things up out of love. Would you let this be true of us? In the essentials, unified. In the non-essentials, free. But in everything that attends the life of Seven Mile Road, love, love. Hear my prayer and answer our prayer. Amen. Amen.